author, an international lecturer on occult topics with a focus on the use of ethogenetic substances in magic and ritual. He is the author of the books Alchemically Stoned, The Psychedelic Secret of Freemasonry, Angels in Vermilion, The Philosopher's Stone from D to DMT, and the forthcoming titles Theurgy, Theory and Practice, and Tripping the Path of Souls, Native American Shamanism in the Mississippi Valley. PD and I are brothers. We're both Freemasons. He is an amazing author, researcher, lecturer, and I was honored to sit down and share some time with him. Um, the work you do has been epic, man, and I, oh, I dig it, you. man. Your book, Angels in Vermilion, I love it, man. Thanks again. That's thank that's you. super awesome. And and um, yeah, no, we were talking some of the other fratters, and I'm like, man, you know, they hooked they hooked me up with your book. They're like, you got to get a hold of P, you know P.D. Newman. I'm like, no way, man. And I got into it. And I'm like, holy shit, where's this guy been my whole life? <laughs> I'm like, this is my dude. Love. You know, I was talking to Jamie Paul Lamb and I know you guys are friends and, you know, we had Jamie, Jamie out. Yeah. Jamie's a great dude. And we were um, chatting up and, you know, he's, he's the same thing. So I started getting into your work and I'm like, man, I got to talk to you. So thanks for definitely taking the time and chatting with me, man. And my pleasure. I'm sorry. It took so long to no. coalesce, you know, no worries, man. It's all happens when it's supposed to, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, definitely. Uh, and then, like, randomly, like, uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove, right? So I'm yeah, like, I, you yeah. know, I watch all of his stuff, and then you pop up on there, and I'm like, holy shit, look at that. <laughs> like, this is awesome. Is, he's just such a sweetheart, man. I, I met him at um, the Tearing Initiative, which met in Yorkshire, and both oh, wow. of us were lecturing up there. And we had a where we were staying was at, the, at Skipton, which is the last village, the last stop on the train stop into Yorkshire. Yeah. And uh, the trains were all shut down on the way home from oh, protesting. Wow. So we had a five hour long taxi ride together, just me, Mishlove, and Dennis McKenna. And uh, it, was, <laughs> it was magic. You know? Dude, I wish, I, I swear I would pray like, to be a fly on the wall in that cab. That had to it be was amazing. So much fun. Yeah. That is so awesome. That, that had to have been an epic time, man. I mean, those two dudes in a cab with you for five hours, that sounds awesome. <laughs> I'll never forget it. Yeah. And that's when Dennis scheduled, they both scheduled an interview with me and I did one with Dennis um, and it'll be the first interview in his new podcast series, which hasn't been released yet. He's awesome. trying to accrue several interviews first, but yeah, yeah, that'll come out probably, probably this summer. That's so epic, man. That That's going to be really awesome. I can't wait to see that. That's going to be, that's going to be so cool. Well, thank you. Trying to, <laughs> we're living in the future, man. Dude, I'm telling you, it's so close. I mean, I do um, information security for a living and I'm, you know, really, AI is so massive right now. Mm -hmm. And um, just the amount I've seen in the past few months, it like literally is going to change the world in the next six, six to 12 months for sure. Yeah. Just the, just the amount of shit that's going to, we're going to see that comes out of it. It's just going to be epic, which kind of rolls into your, your work, man. It's like, I really feel like some of this AI stuff is tapping into the spirit realm the same way that DMT and some uh, you know, the other like actually do to, for people, you know, in a, in a different way. I think that's kind of it's, a, it's part of the global dialogue. If we're talking about those things, it seems like it should be able to tap into it. Yeah. I mean, it, I think it should do it and then probably more efficient than humans. <laughs> it's yeah. like, you know, it's scary. The, the, the cross section between AI and, and, uh, and, you know, I don't know, uh, collective consciousness, for example. I mean, I think mm -hmm. that's that's kind of it. And then probably psi abilities and, you know, uh, remote viewing and things like that. I mean, 
-hmm. there's already some examples online that people have been, uh, you know, seeing like AI do some of these things like remote viewing and some of this other stuff. I remember Timothy Leary talking about, um, this was back in like 1990. Um, but he was talking about how he believed that the internet was, you know, this materialization of this notion of a collective unconscious. And, right. you know, he, he was, he was right on the toes of that kind of thinking. Oh yeah. I, I think it's <clears throat> there. I mean, I really do. I mean, a lot of people have foresaw it as well. And you know, it's just this, it, it's, it's almost like a artificial collective consciousness in a way, you know, mm-hmm. that, that can be tapped. And then, you know, I think that the human machine interface. I mean, a lot of times, I mean, um, you know, everybody DMT, I haven't yet to experience it, but you know, everybody has kind of the same stories, the machine elves, you know, I was talking to Jimmy Paul Lamb about it and, you know, he, he saw different things like Anubis and some, you know, some other stuff, but like there's this collective underlay. And I wonder if it's just like another programming structure, if you think of it in that regards, right? Like if for, um, you know, uh, code right is it it's just another code that lays on top or above or below or you know a reflection of it that kind of goes across yeah i never saw the what terrence mckenna described as the self-transforming machine elves i saw things that my brother and i we described as what we called tadpole paisleys and that's what they looked like they swam like tadpoles but they had the kind of geometric appearance as a paisley like you would see on a western shirt or something yeah yeah um but they and they would self transform and they did kind of dribble, but uh, but I wouldn't have caught. They, I wouldn't say they were elves, you know. Right. McKinney right. unfortunately never made the effort to draw what he was seeing, and if mm-hmm. he had maybe drawn it, we'd have a better idea of what he meant. But but that term gets used to describe so many different things that don't seem to be cognate to me. They seem yeah. Well, and the thing with the UFOs, you know, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm really big into UFOs and, you know, but obviously consciousness and, you know, it's, it's, it's grasped me in a, in a way where it encompasses everything the mystery schools, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the way people talk about fairies, elves, trolls, gnomes, it's like uh, Bigfoot ghosts. It's mm-hmm. like all of those things kind of coalesce into to one big human experience, you know, that we're dealing with something that we've been dealing with forever. That's not human that mm-hmm. can interact with us. We can interact with it. Um, and, and we have, and we've done throughout the centuries. Right. But now we're the trying Native to describe- Americans described a, a Bigfoot type entity, the Southeastern Native Americans that they said, we used to be of the same stock, but humans bro- broke away from them. And they, they had this, they said that they could, they could, they were invisible unless they wanted you to see them. And then the, wow. you could see them. Um, and I was just reading about the first Bigfoot sighting, which actually took place in Mississippi. Really? Uh-huh. I thought that was fascinating. And, you that know, we have a lot of UFO, UFO activity here. I'm yeah. sure you, you remember the, the 1975 Pascagoula monster incident. Yeah, yeah. Um, and my wife and I, we had a close encounter, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. Really? We saw we saw a UFO. Not, it wasn't more than 50 feet above our heads. Wow. Um, and it didn't look like what people just, but I mean, it was, it looked like, um, like a long cylinder with rounded edges and it was covered in flashing lights. And this thing just sat there for, I mean, minutes. Uh, and we were just transfixed on it. And right. then there was a second one came over the horizon, over the tree line and kind of locked in with it. And then they were both gone in a split second amazing yeah no effects sober. health effects or anything after that no 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 weird health effects we were totally sober we weren't tripping wow 
and we did somehow time was weird because we were on our way home from work um, and it must have been 11 30 12 o'clock something like that and the incident didn't feel like it we pulled over the car and got out and stood there and looked at it and that didn't feel like it lasted longer than 10 minutes but when Mm -hmm. we got home it was 2 a.m wow so you had missing time associated with it as well and it was a 20 minute drive yeah so wow they got you (laughs) (laughs) it's amazing it's it's like the people that have these experiences you know what it's like a ufo experience it just it's like a gateway it opens up to where you're going to have all kinds of anomalous experiences, you know, whether it's, you know, UFOs or go, mm-hmm. like any of those things. Right. And I think it's kind of an amazing um, experience. And I wonder if that's kind of part of what it is. It's kind of like, okay, well, this is something completely out of the realm, which, which kind of, you know, if you go back and you look at fairies, the fairy lore or folklore or that, like, you know, things that aren't necessarily normal to mm-hmm. your day-to-day activities. And once that happens, it's like magic. Right. And then you see the magic in the world around you. And I feel like it's kind of, you know, probably part of the rationale behind it. It's like, well, this is something that you've never seen before. Boom. Like, so then your mind has to go to the right places that it's never been. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm sure and, you remember Douglas Adams. He, he, he called it the SCP complex. Um, like if you saw an alien, mm-hmm. you wouldn't acknowledge it. You wouldn't recognize it. Your brain would filter it out because your brain says, this is someone else's problem. SCP complex. I'm not, yeah, gonna, yeah, yeah. we're not going to acknowledge this. But once it's acknowledged, it's like, then you start seeing that stuff everywhere. That's, a, that's In my experience. There were no aliens. We saw no entities, no beings. Right. Um, but several months before that, I had, I had an abduction experience. Granted, it was on between 20 and 30 grams of psilocybin mushrooms. Oh, that'll do it. Mm, it did it. Yeah. <laughs> it. It absolutely did it. These snake, yeah. snake people took me into space. But wow. in that case, there was no ship. It was just, we were in space. But, uh. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it could have been that experience that exasperated the the second one. Who knows? Well, I mean, that's that's something I've always been fascinated with. When because you get into you know um, hallucinogenics, mind altering substances, and you look at it as are are you really opening a, a portal or a gateway inside of your mind to another dimension where you can interact with these different creatures, beings, aliens, whatever you want to call them. I'm like, is that a thing? And and I really believe that they've done research, you know, the U S government's done research for years on, you know, all these different types of, um, uh, either, you know, mind altering drugs or, um, mind altering states, things like right. to, you know, to get hypnosis, anything like that, right. To get you into a state. And they've also dabbled in the occult the entire time as well to make things oh, yeah. happen. Right. Hand yeah. in hand. Right. Uh, the initiative or you're just the, you know, infiltrated many of, you know, the fraternities and groups that you and I are part of as well. And to try to figure out because it works, <laughs> they know, found out that some of this stuff works, of, right. Of, uh, intelligence agents to this day, um, finding their way into lodges. Um, I don't want to say too much about it, but I will say there's a big, it's a big problem in Colorado. Really? Yeah. yeah. It's amazing, right? It's like, it, it, you know, you, you and I know enough about the fraternity and the orders we're in, and you're probably in orders, obviously that I'm not, but I mean, it's not like there's a bunch of secret sauce that the government can't get their hands on if they want it to. Right. <laughs> it's yeah, probably been printed a hundred times. You could read it. You could read it. Anything we do in manuals like Duncan's ritual. But the thing is you could, you could repeat what happens there and get no results. And the main, the main reason is um, what's called licentia license, 
having the license to do these things is what mm-hmm. makes them effective. Okay. And whether or not you believe in spirits or not. I mean, on one hand, the license is you have license to traffic with these spirits. So it'd be almost like if you had a cop car and you pulled someone over, but you get to their car and you're not a cop, they're going to say, who the fuck are you? Why are you pulling me over? You're not a cop, you know, similar with these spirits. Well, if, even if, even if you don't believe in that kind of an approach, licencia still has psychological impact. You know, you're not welcome there. You know, you're trespassing on something you haven't been given license to do. And I think, actually going through the proper channels is 99% of why this stuff works when it works. Wow. That's amazing. That's, that's, that makes a huge amount of sense because I've noticed that there's a real specific interest in experiencers by the government, right? So Mm -hmm. by, by the intelligence agencies, people that actually are experiencers, like the intelligence agencies just flock to them. There's a guy named Chris Bledsoe, um, you know, that the, every agency in the world has been on top of it because he has um, reoccurring experiences and, mm. and um, you know, they're not shy about it. And one of them, you know, even said is like, well, they, you know, they don't talk to us, they talk to you. So that's why we're trying to figure out what's going on. Right. And yeah, it seems, and it seems like that's a repeating pattern throughout um, all these experiences, you know, it's UFOs and it, but it leads into all these other things, you know, like, um, you know, the white lady is a, is a big thing that a lot of these UFOs ex- experiencers are having. It's, you know, it's a lady in white coming to them, pro- prophetic things. You know, a lot of people call them colored by every name that we know lady of, you know, white. or Sophia. It sounds like uh, Santa Muerte, the, the white lady. Yeah. The, the you know, Santa Muerte's holy death. and, and Really? Give me some family. info on that one. I'm not familiar with that. You, you, you are, you just don't realize you are. Um, ah. Oh, so yeah. Going. Okay. Gotcha. So it's amazing how every culture in every society has the white lady mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, it's pervasive. It's, it's Madonna, it's the Virgin Mary. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's and uh, alchemy, Fatima. And, and, and well, it was one of the earliest Masonic exposés um, that was exposed in 1721 in a magazine called the post boy, a newspaper called the post boy. And in it, um, it's talking about what, what are the highest secrets of Freemasonry? And it mentions, the silver lady and the ability to chain the golden dragon. But it mentions the silver lady, which is very similar. Wow. That's amazing. It's, um, it, it, it's interesting how all of these things are, are seemingly in, not connected, but they are completely connected on all fronts. It's just, it's just a giant, you know, collection of everything. And I think people, mm-hmm. the problem with a lot of, you know, the current I would say, you know, groups, you know, like UFO Twitter, right. That I'm on there all the time. I'm into it. They don't talk to like Bigfoot Twitter or, you know, all these other things. Right. It's just, um, you know, it's in the ghost people don't talk to the Bigfoot people. (laughs) Like it's, it's like, it's all the same thing. Once everybody figures out that it's all the same thing that, you know, it's going to be amazing because, Maybe the same phenomenon, but not the same places. Maybe, maybe something like that, you know? Right, right, right. I think it all, it all connects. But opening, opening you to different domains. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. That's, that's amazing that, um, you've had those experiences and, uh, it's interesting about the intelligence agencies infiltrating, uh, the fraternity. Um, Mm -hmm. they are, they are, uh, in Colorado, it's especially bad. Um, and several of those guys have, have died, um, over the last five, 10 years. But at one point it was, I mean, it, it, it it was getting out of hand and I still, to this day, we don't really know what, 
what they were looking for, what the, what they were doing, but right, it's definitely happening. That's amazing. So they actually like joined the fraternity and everything, and just came through, got went through the in lab. mass, yeah, and 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 basically uh, started their own lodge out there, a group of intelligence agents. Um, wow. I think it's since disbanded, uh, and it was under a particular um, grandmaster at the time who I believe he's passed away, but he, it, it was, it was out of hand. Yeah. Wow. And I'm sure it's like that in other States, but this was just the most visible. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's, it's kind of bizarre. And you know, I always talk about this and the reason that I came forward and started talking publicly about it was because Tom DeLong, you know, if you, you know, if you Tom, Tom DeLong is Blink-22, mm-hmm. you know, he came out in 2018 and had to the stars um, Academy and he, they did this press conference and they had like, five different guys on the stage that would never be next to each other in a normal setting. Right. And mm-hmm. you look at them and it's like, that's what happens in masonry all the time. Right. You got former deputy director of defense. You got, uh, you know, scientists, you got a guy from Lockheed Martin that's been there retired, you know, and the guy that used to run the program. And it's like, that, that would happen in Masonic Lodge right there. Yeah. That, would, that happens yeah. all the time. Right. And if it wasn't for masonry, my, my, uh, the pool of people that I consider my close friends would probably be limited to, my peers and my age group, but since right. I became a Mason, I mean, there are men who are in their late eighties and nineties who I consider my best friends, you know, it's amazing. Isn't Masonry it? is really incredible in that regard. Yeah, no, totally. I love it. I love it. There's and, a, in one of the old lectures for the mm-hmm. checkered pavement, um, a statement is made, you know, what does the checkered pavement represent? And the answer given is that, um, it signifies that men of completely different backgrounds, ages, and colors can sit right next to one another and and be useful. Right. And I wish we still had that in our lectures because it's, uh, you know, it, it speaks to our ability to transcend racial differences, religious mm-hmm. differences. Yeah. The, uh, age divides all of those, right? Everything. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just amazing. And, and I'm right there with you. Some of the guys that I've met that are, I consider true friends are 20, 30 years older than me. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, and then we it same goes the other way. There's some guys that are young that I'd never would have talked to 22, 23 year old guys true. that are amazing. Right. They're like, and they need people like you as a mentor and we need people like those older guys. You know, that's yeah. a big, big part of what we miss in America is time with our mentors. Uh, right. There's this, this African, I can't remember the exact word, but in the Congo, there's this word that they use to describe the relationship between a young man and an older man as his mentor. But the word actually means close enough to smell, to smell his stink. You know? <laughs> we, we need that. We're, we're yeah. really missing that here. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely needed. And I think that's cool. But I mean, I think there's definitely a um, rejuvenated um, interest in, in the fraternity, you know, just for me being mm-hmm. online, there's a lot of guys that reached out to me that said, Hey, I want to be amazing. How do I do it? And I've helped that's them, great. you know, and it's been yeah. awesome in you know, different States and kind of getting along the way. I and, believe in masonry as a, I mean, if nothing else, as a, a, a rite of passage into what uh, Robert Davis calls deep masculinity, mature masculinity. And again, that's what something that we, we lack in the States, especially in postmodern metamodern times is, uh, is that kind of rite of passage again, licentia some, and, and Victor Turner talks about how in indigenous cultures, you're not a man until the men make you a man. Ah, right. And, 
And that's that licencia. You know, you can walk around saying, well, I'm the man all you want. But in the back of your mind, if you haven't been accepted by the men, then you're not the man. You know? Yeah. No, that, that totally makes sense. I, um, I think that's kind of the part of the thing. And maybe that's what, maybe that's what the infiltration is about. They're trying to figure it out. They can't figure it out. I mean, like you said, you can read it all day long, but until I went through my first degree, I had no idea. That's right. You know, I mean, I, I, it's the experience, the initiatory experience of what it does to you, you know, mm-hmm. even all the other orders as well. I mean, it's one of those things where it actually does something to you. It changed. I mean, for me, it changed me, you know, me too. Um, and it's not the information they're telling you. I mean, Right. Most of it, there's so much talking and movement and things going on that you, you can try and grab every word, but you're not going to, Right. you know, I didn't know what, what really was happening or said to me until after my degrees, when mm-hmm. I'd participate in other people's or when I was doing my memory work, but exactly, it was undeniable that something had shifted after those degrees. It is. And it is, it's truly amazing. I wish more people would experience it, honestly. I mean, I think mm-hmm. it's, it's profound, you know, and, um, it's really interesting to see that it's carried the traditions throughout time of memoriam, basically, right. From mm-hmm. it, it's kept it and, you know, it's been hidden, but you know, Masons were murdered all over the globe in different instances, you know, right. For the, whatever, right. Name something. World War II. I mean, there were between 18,000 and 22,000 Masons died in the, just like Holocaust victims alongside them. It's amazing. Isn't it? They were rounded up and, and, uh, murdered. I mean, and that's, I think what, what the, um, forget me not pin uh, derived from there's a forget me not instead it was a way to show that you were a mason um to um, other masons at the time because the if you had a square and compass on you you would be murdered right and they, they would wear those little blue flowers yeah 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 which is uh, interesting you know to see where we've come now mm-hmm. through the whole thing where we could be free and talk about what we want to <laughs> close to it yeah yeah <laughs> as close as we can get <laughs> right definitely so uh, your book is epic, man. I mean, what made you sit down and do that? I mean, this book is amazing. I mean, both, I mean, both your books are great, but I mean, like what made you do angels and vermilion? You were just like, I, I saw this connection. I know this connection. I'm going to do the research and just dove in and did it. Well, like the, the, I started writing on. So when I became a Freemason, I, yeah. I did it to move away from uh, psychedelics because that's right. all I knew. I had been doing psychedelics since I was about 11 years old and in the beginning, we approached it a lot like, um, a lot like the Surrealists did mm-hmm. in the Surrealist Manifesto, where it was more a way to explore your unconscious and be artistic. We would paint, write poetry, right? But after a certain point, um, and I find this to be true with most people who really experiment with psychedelics, mm-hmm. it starts to take a turn for the ominous the spiritual things that transcend the domain of art and and so when i became a mason it was because i realized i was way out of my league i had i had nobody to talk to about this kind of stuff and uh the only place in literature where i had found anything like what i was experiencing was in uh, eastern texts you know taoist text and buddhist and yoga and the vedas but i'm in mississippi you know there's nobody (laughs) to talk to about those things here and uh and i knew that masonry i guess when i was man i must have been 11 or 12 i was spending the night with a friend and his grandfather had been a freemason Mm -hmm. and there was a copy of morals and dogma sitting on the bookshelf and i remember pulling that book out and flipping through it and thinking "I, i i don't know what this is, but I'm going to find out what this is about. 
That's awesome. And a lot of the things, the words and terms I encountered in this Eastern literature, I first saw in Morals and Dogma. Oh, wow. You know, so I thought, well, maybe, maybe the Freemasons can, even if they're not doing psychedelics, maybe they'll know something about these spiritual territories and help me navigate this stuff because I really have no idea. I'm out, I'm off in the deep end, you know? Right. And so when I joined the lodge, I had made a conscious decision to not do psychedelics, to not think about psychedelics and to try and meet masonry on its own terms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I did that until I got to the third degree and I saw that that sprig of vacation. (laughs) They're like, ding, 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 ding. Just months before I joined, we had done our first organic extraction of DMT from acacia. Wow. So I was thinking, well, that's impossible. What that's, this is a, just a synchronicity, a coincidence. Um, don't think about it like that. Just yeah. try and put it on its own terms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I couldn't, I couldn't shake the feeling, especially when they talked about how it represents the immortality of the soul, because the mm-hmm. experience of the acacia, when you do it, is that you have a soul. You experience it firsthand out of your body, separated, you know, wow. this independent consciousness from the material organism that you're usually attached to. Wow. And so the first paper that I wrote, um, I wrote it in 2012. I think it came out in 2013, but it was just called um, something like the sprig of acacia and the immortality of the soul or something mm-hmm. like that. But all I did was point out that, isn't it interesting that this plant has this drug in it and we're told about the immortality of the soul and it has the power to induce the experience of that. And, uh, and it was much more well-received than I thought it would be. Right. And, um, so I, that, that gave me the nerve to write my first book, Alchemically Stoned, which was written for a Masonic audience. I wrote it in a language that if you weren't a Mason, you're not going to be able to make sense of all of it. And I did that on purpose. Right. But at that time, I really thought that uh, the Masons, that Freemasonry had preserved this secret. I had no idea how they got a hold of it. I had no idea where it went once they stopped using it. Because, you know, they were using it. We know from Cagliostro and Melisino, they were using it. Um, But why did they stop? Because we obviously don't use it now. And I couldn't answer those questions. And over the couple of years after Alchemically Stoned came out, I had taken a step back from the lodge and realized that each of the cases where we know they were using the acacia in an entheogenic context, the men writing about it were alchemists. Right. So I spent the next few years buying, reading, paying to have translated every alchemical text I could find. Wow. And it, it start, pieces started to it started to piece together that I realized this wasn't a Masonic problem. It was an alchemical problem that found its way into Freemasonry. Wow. And at this, this day and age, we, you know, we have probably a hundred different schools of alchemy that each have yeah. their own interpretations, their own systems. But in the beginning, there was one system of alchemy and it was given, the word itself was given to us by this, um, this Egyptian from Akmim, Egypt named Zosimos and Zosimos tells us right off the bat in his book, Mushaf Asuvar, it means the book of pictures, that uh, he says, even though we're using metallurgical language to discuss alchemy, it has nothing to do with metals. He says, the reason we use the term cinnabar, which is a red mineral, Mm -hmm. is because it resembles acacia, which is red. And he says that the processes 
that we use to extract mercury and sulfur from cinnabar. That's what cinnabar is composed of, mm -hmm. the two major alchemical elements. Wow. He says the reason we use that terminology is because the processes are analogous to the processes used to extract the stone from the acacia. Wow. And he says this outright in Mushafa Suvar. So in the beginning of alchemy, at the very initial stages of it, it was about yeah. entheogens. It was about DMT specifically. Wow. And it was about something that would give you a firsthand experience of your immortal soul. Um, so that, you know, it, it, it was written or, organically. By the time I wrote Angels in Vermilion, um, I mainly did it, to be totally honest, as a favor to Jamie Paul Lamb and the guys at Pri Pri Prima Materia, uh, yeah. season, Tria Prima. They were starting a publication company and asked me if I'd like to contribute something. And I said, well, you know, if I could do it all over again and write Angels and uh, write Alchemically Stoned again, right. I would do it differently. And I would approach it from an alchemical angle and I would make it chronological. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, uh, and so that's what I did. And that's how angels and vermilion came about that's awesome man it's a great book and, and that's a book that anybody could pick up and just you know not mason at all and just go mm -hmm. through it and, and just blast it out where yeah alchemically stoned i was just floored by that as well going wow this is uh, um, amazing and just and like you you know when i joined you know i was even though we're brothers it's kind of you know how, how are you going to be able to talk about some of these things you know um mm -hmm. uh, it, it, without getting you know ridicule or or you know labeled or whatever even in, in the lodge when we're not even supposed to do that to one another. so it's yeah. interesting to see how we've come kind of full circle in this amount of research that you've done in in research like yours and publications like yours um definitely are like kicking the door down and saying look we we don't have to be afraid of these it, the stigma doesn't need to be there you know there's enough scientists there's enough um things happening uh, all over the world that shows the benefit of all these things in the mm -hmm. and um and we've already had it part of our tradition since the beginning we just got to go back and uncover those secrets that have been in our face the entire time we just have to the mere fact that it's endogenous released by our bodies we don't know where in the body or under what circumstances it releases it but the mere fact that it's there yeah um, it is enough to warrant asking those questions for, oh yeah a thousand percent and then how um how it could be used to benefit you know mankind honestly i think i think it's there i mean especially when you go back like you said to the very beginning of the text and, then, and you look at all of the degrees you know the allegories behind the degrees and you know the immortality of the soul and mm -hmm. and um you know that would do it right away if you can imagine that happening you know um uh, that'd be part of the whole ceremony right i mean it would be mm -hmm. uh, that would be it that would be like you said you so you've actually experienced that separation of your soul from your body on the on uh, acacia i didn't even know that was a oh absolutely yeah wow um, that's amazing yeah. and that, that's got to be a, a profound it's not that i had a what people would call an out-of-body experience where i'm hovering above my body and looking down at myself that's not right what i mean, what I mean is it was a uh, it was an experience of of traveling, of moving without my body and mm -hmm. going places that I couldn't take my body to. Right. And, you know, it, it, it was what, what is a classic trance state, stage, stage three of David Lewis Williams, three stages of trance. Right. And his the first stage of trance is the experience of these certain patterns he calls form constants. And these are things like spirals, honeycomb patterns, um, mm. trellises. Uh, and these are common to trance with and without 
psychedelics. The first gotcha. stage of any tra real trance experience starts with the appearance of this, these, this geometry. Gotcha. And the second stage is where those patterns start to take on the quality of things that you would recognize them as. Like if we said honeycomb pattern, right. that might then become a honeycomb. Okay. Or if we okay. said a, a, a spiral, that might then become a whirlpool or a tornado or something. And okay. then stage three is where the, the fourth wall falls and you're immersed in that experience to where you might be a bee in a honeycomb or you might right. be being attacked by bees or covered in honey, but you become uh, a player mm -hmm. in that scene. Wow. Uh, so when I say proof of my soul, of course, any materialist is going to argue, well, you're in a trance state, you're basically dreaming. But anyone right. who's done DMT knows it's not like a dream. You're, mm -hmm. you're aware, you're present, you're conscious for it, kind of in the way you are in a lucid dream. We could call it a lucid dream. Right. You know, but even that isn't clear because people get the idea that a lucid dream is a dream where you you can control your dream. And that's oh. not the case. Uh, I'm, I'm a lucid dreamer. I lucid dream often. Oh, that's awesome. Never does it manifest as me saying, oh, well, I want to do this. Let's dream about this. Mm -hmm. It's always that I'm conscious of the fact that I'm dreaming, but I can't change anything about it. Gotcha. You know, I'm still in the middle of this movie. And that's it's more like that. Um, but that when we're talking about the soul, this, this unit that has first person awareness that ha has mind present with it. And yet it's not attached to the experience of a body. That's as close as we're going to get, you know, to really understanding soul. The only time I've ever had an experience where I, I left my body and I knew that my body was still there um, mm -hmm. was a near death experience. And I, which is why I don't think near death experiences and DMT experience are necessarily the same thing. Um, I was struck by lightning. Uh, oh eight, my God. Eight years ago. Oh, wow. And it actually, so today's the 23rd, three days ago was the eight year anniversary of that. Wow. NDE. But so I, 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 I differ between those experiences. I draw lines. Well, that's a, that's a really, uh, interesting because a lot of people that have UFO experiences, paranormal experiences, often have had near-death experiences prior they've had a near-death experience Ooh. and then and then at some point they've seen angels or, or or aliens you know whatever you want to you know but a lot of ufo a lot of um i didn't know that you know, yeah it's amazing there's a huge correlation between the two of people that having near-death experiences and then having the, the ability to see ufos orbs spirits you know all of those things and, and it's a it, there's a huge correlation i think there might even be a couple books um wow. about it by, by now believe it or not but I yeah that's a, it's a huge thing um, and I don't know for me, when I heard that, when I, and I, fortunately I, I, not that I'm aware of, <laughs> I've had a near death experience. I probably have, but, um, uh, I, I go back to the third degree, you know, to uh, masonry mm -hmm. where, where you have the experience, um, in, you know, in, in a sense. Right. But I think mm -hmm. that I wonder if that's an you know, like the analogy is there, uh, there's no way that being struck by lightning and, and literally almost dying and going through an initiatory experience are the same thing. But in my mind, I'm trying to wrap around like, well, maybe the something uh, physically, mentally, chemically happens to you that 
kind of is, is the same. So, um, that's why I was, I was really thinking, uh, going back to like, okay, well, why are the, why are all these, um, intelligence agencies, you know, uh, infiltrating masonry or whatever, or interested in the masonry? I'm like, well, maybe is that it? Like, is there something going on that they're trying to, are they trying to find a key that they know is there, but they, they can't, um, nail down, but, um, man. Yeah, that's you, interesting. I, I, I don't, I don't have an answer for that, but that's no, no. But yeah, can you tell me about your near, near death experience? I mean, that sounds terrible. I'm s- <laughs> yeah, it was terrible. Um, <sighs> so it, it, you know, the day before, um, it, it happened around midnight on April 20th. So that's four twenty. You know, yeah. But the day before is, is the big LSD bicycle day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for years I would take, LSD on, on bicycle day. And yeah. I had taken three hits and, um, I was in my apartment. We lived on the second floor and I had a balcony mm-hmm. that overlooked the courtyard. And, uh, I was trying to take a picture of this lightning. It was this purple, brilliant purple lightning. I never, never seen anything like it. Wow. Of I couldn't get a picture of it. Cause you know how lightning is, <laughs> yeah. but I'm yeah. trying to do, to get pictures of it. And, it was while I was doing that that uh, it, the, it it struck a tree in the courtyard that was about ten feet from me, and I got hit with rebound lightning from that. And wow. all I remember is uh, being paralyzed. My I, I grabbed my hips, put my hands on my hips when it happened, and I got mm-hmm. stuck like that. And I and it, the funniest thing I remember thinking in that moment, my one thought was, I bet I look like Peter Pan standing <laughs> here with my hands on my hips. Like that's that was my one thought. And, um, and I heard this noise, uh, that was like, like the shrill buzz of an insect, but with a Mm -hmm. grinding kind of tone to it. And I remember really hating that sound, Mm. not liking that sound. And I later found out from my wife that who was present, that that I was making that sound. It was coming out of my mouth. Whoa. But I, I don't remember ever falling, but I must have because I ended up laying down. Um, but after I heard that noise, the next thing I realized was that I was standing, on, like I said, it's a balcony and there's a railing that comes up about waist high, about to my belly button. Mm-hmm. And I, I looked down and my toes, I was standing on my toes on that rail tip tilted forwards at like 45 degrees. And I remember thinking, Oh my God, I'm going to fall. This is terrible. I'm going to fall. And I'm, I was like trying to brace myself to fall, but I never fell. I kept kind of like wavering there. Wow. And I thought, what is going on? You know, I didn't, re- I didn't know I'd been struck by lightning. Um, and so at that moment, I remember looking up and I could see the tree line perfectly, but right above the tree line, the sky was gone and it had been replaced by what looked like a giant mosque covered in honey or liquid gold, just rippling all over it. And there were things rippling on it. You ever seen the, the Sri Yantra looks like a bunch of interlock triangles. It's a, Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Um, it looked like the Sri Yantra rippling out all over it. Like if people were throwing pebbles at it, but it baked Sri Yantras as it rippled. And I thought, man, that looks incredible. What is this place? I've never seen this place. Uh, and as I'm gawking at it, watching these ripples happen, I noticed out of the corner of my right eye that there was, there was something moving and I looked back down at it and there was an, an entity just like P 
people describe on DMT or something, but it, it wasn't geometrical. It looked like Kintaro almost like from wow. Mortal Kombat. You yeah. Know? Yeah. With that. He yeah. has arms all over him. So this thing has yeah. arms all over his body and in each arm is a different weapon, sword, axe, dagger, a whip, all these weapons. And, Whoa. and he's waving them at me, threatening me with each weapon. And instead of his head, uh, he had what looked to me kind of like the Mayan calendar. Um, but in the center, instead of that face was a skull. And I knew instantly, this is death. I'm looking at death personified. And I also intuitively knew that he was 25 feet tall. I don't know where that came from, but I remember knowing this, this thing is 25 feet tall. And as I'm looking at him, he, he doesn't say anything, but he communicates to me in this very, um, fucking hate technology <laughs> i'm so sorry brother that's okay man it's like it knew we were gonna talk about something really good and it was like nope you're done we're just gonna shut down this entire video conference they were gonna shut the whole thing down on you it was like it happens more times than i i, I could even count every time i get into an experience uh, on a podcast or something or on a phone call yeah something like this happens every time so that's weird. I wanted to ask you this because I've heard this story and I've never actually met anybody that got hit by lightning. Do you have do electronics to things like, can you feel when lightning comes? Do you have anything? Oh, yeah. Wanna, oh, yeah. yeah. You can, you can tell where it's going to happen before it's even in the sky kind of thing. Yep. I never, I never could before that, before the incident, never felt anything like that. But now I, my, all my hair stands straight up and it stand and it'll point in the direction that the lightning's coming. My wow. hair would look that way. Holy shit. Yeah. And uh, I read that people who have been struck by lightning are hundreds of times more likely to be struck again. Yeah. So I, I, I try and avoid the shit out of it. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I shudder to think about what I was doing out there on the balcony. Oh my God. Now, I would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So to come back to edit it all back together, but basically they had this like had this Kintaro guy with a whole bunch of arms, different weapons, like threatening you from below yeah. you. You're yeah. you're on the balcony looking up. His, he, he had he he had what looked like the the Mayan calendar um, as as a head or a... A, a, yeah, and it, it, it surrounded his head. And his head, instead of that face at the center of the traditional calendar, was a a skull. And I I knew that this was death. I was looking at death personified. Wow. And he didn't say anything, but he communicated to me in a very kind way. His, his body looked threatening, but right. what he what he said was, you're more than welcome to go in that mosque and explore and have a great time. But if you do, you'll never see your wife and kids again. It, it's It's not nothing against you, but this is a choice you have to make. And I remember thinking, uh, well, it's not a choice at all. You can keep your fucking mosque. <laughs> I mean, my, my youngest son, Bacchus, he was one year old in, in their sleep, you know. And I remember thinking, you know, I got two older kids. That they're 23 and 22 now. Oh, wow. But we're teenagers then. And uh, I just remember thinking, well, you can keep your fucking mosque. I'm going back in there. I'm going to bed with them when this is over with. Right, know? right, right. Wow. Geez. So did you, I mean, was a hospital, hospitalization, all that stuff after that? I mean. No, no. Wow. I, I, she wanted me to go to the hospital. Um, right. But when I came to, I had uh, I, I had foam in my mouth and on the corners of my mouth. I'd never yeah. experienced anything like that. I, 
I still don't know where the foam comes from, but there was foam in my mouth. Wow. Um, and I was paralyzed, could, couldn't move for what felt like 20 or 30 minutes, but it wasn't. It was only a couple minutes. And wow. Then, and then I was, my whole body, uh, it felt like I had been thrown in a, um, a bo- boiling cauldron or something. I, wow. I felt like I had been boiled. Uh, and my head was absolutely pounding. Right. Um, but uh, I didn't want to go to the hospital. I didn't think I needed to. And uh, I probably should have. But uh, <laughs> and, and and at the time I had um, markings on me from it, but they didn't they didn't scar me like it does with people who get directly right. struck. If I right. had directly struck, it probably would have killed me. Yeah. That's amazing. Jeez. That's so interesting. Um, that you, I mean, I don't know. I'm a big proponent of everything happens to make us stronger believe, you know, it's, there's a rationale behind it. Something happens. We had to, you know, learn from it, but that's just interesting that that, that happened to you. And then, I mean, like I said, there's that whole correlation between near-death experiences and, and experiencers, like you know, like as they call mm-hmm. them. And it's 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 interesting to see. I wonder if that actually has had a, a role to play in um in you know your life. Probably. I mean, it slowed me down. I really haven't done much with psychedelics or anything like that since that experience. Right um, now, I was recently initiated into a tradition called Palo Mayombe which is an Afro-Cuban tradition that survived from Congo. Wow. And uh, I pursued this because we found out that we're descended from freed slaves from Cameroon. Oh, wow. So I found out I had Congo blood in me, and I wanted to do something to try and connect with that side of my ancestry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, similar to Ocha, Orisha, Santeria, mm-hmm. you have... There are several what's called mpungu, kind of like the Orishas, but they're they're kind of like powerful spirits. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but there's one that rules you, that is your your father. Okay, and, um, and this is found out through divination, ah. divination method. But I was shocked to find out that my father in the tradition is a, a mpungu named Sieterayos or Insasi which means seven bolts of lightning. And this was seven years after my lightning striking experience. Oh my God. So once I found this out, I started researching in Sasi and it said that um, anyone who has been struck by lightning and survives is automatically considered a child of Insasi. So I thought that was absolutely uh, uncanny. That's amazing. Synchronicity, right? Like one of Mm -hmm. those things where it's just Mm -hmm. like, it's meant to be. Yeah. That's bizarre. So that was wild because you recently did you just recently go down there to South America and and uh... no, I, I recently went to Guatemala. Oh, uh, Guatemala! Sorry, down there because there's a um, a filmmaker who's making a documentary on my research based based on the timeline in Angels in Vermilion. Oh, so we went down there to film some footage and to to do some interviews. Uh, we ended up doing some ritual, but it was uh, what we did down there was called the the rite of elevation and theurgy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the theurgists were a group of um, ritualists within the Neoplatonists who had this ritual that uh, that's what my new book that's about to come out um, called theurgy theory and practice. Oh, nice. Um, they had this one ritual that they did to affect this elevation, this ascension. And mm-hmm. um, so we, we, we put a person through that while we were down there. 
Wow, that's rad. Is that Blavatsky? Was that part of when they separated it at one point? Um, I, I re- remember reading that at one point when Blavatsky was in America, they there was some type of um, one of the meeting places had a, a glass ceiling or a portal in the roof. No, or something so like that. there, that's later. Might be con- confusing later it. I'm theosophy. sorry. Yeah. Okay. So in the, in the beginning, the, the Theosophical Society when they met mm-hmm. in New York, right? Their plan was to be. Um, this organization that pursued magic. In fact, they had a textbook written by this incredible woman named Emma Hardinge Britton, and it's called Art Magic, and that was to be the textbook, and it's all about practical magic. Mm -hmm. Well, the the vice president of the Theosophical Society at the time was this man named George Felt. We didn't know a lot about him because he disappeared immediately after this, but he had this drug we don't know what drug we have a good idea what drug mm-hmm. but he had this drug he burned on a sensor and it it caused everyone present at the meeting to see uh, these uh, these entities that Alcott described as looking like the demons and francis barrett's the magus wow um, which which kind of look like if you've seen the goetia mm-hmm. um, half man half animal kind of beasts um, but he said everyone there saw these things whenever he did the invocation and burned this drug, and it caused a complete uproar, and everyone panicked. And it, right. this, this is when Blavatsky created what uh, John Patrick Davini calls the Second Theosophical Society, okay. which would not do any practical magic and would s- simply focus on theoretical stuff. Got it. Well. The Theosophical Society at the time was in competition with another organization called the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor. Okay. Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor, they offered to do right the opposite of her second Theosophical Society. They said, we're just going to focus on practical occultism. Right. And this this was bringing people in droves from the Theosophical Society to the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor. Um, so in response to that, Blavatsky creates an inner order. Uh, where she says, okay, we'll take our our best people and we'll allow them to do practical stuff. And she would do it in this room with a window in the ceiling. Okay. That's where it all comes in. Okay. But everybody who participated in that never wrote about it. So we don't know what they did in that inner order. Yeah. And and then I think once the, um, the guy that had the substance right he disappeared disappeared so, right. immediately and, after everyone freaked out he disappeared and um you, you know they called it a um, a scandal at the mm-hmm. time right and we're talking like what 19 1909 i can't remember eight, it's eight, 18 this uh, you know, oh eight founded the the theosophical society i think in 1875 okay um, yeah definitely wow that's awesome mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you look at that now and it's like well, what was that? It was probably DMT. Well, probably- they said they said if you read, you know, if you read the early letters and mm-hmm. if you read the early papers, they are consciously trying to recreate Cagliostro's order. They say they're doing this to continue what Cagliostro started, and he says in blatant, clear terms that the prima materia of alchemy is the acacia that you were given in the degree of ordinary master and regular masonry. Right. And from it, we've made this red liqueur. Um, and his, he wrote this alchemical text called Lettres Centrino Sophie. Um, and in it, he describes it as saffron colored. Uh-huh. It's That's that red liqueur that yeah. they're drinking to induce that experience. And um, 
DMT by itself usually isn't orally active because right. there's a compound in your gut, monoamine oxidase, that burns it up before it passes the blood-brain barrier, has an uh. opportunity to pass the blood-brain barrier. Huh. So with things like ayahuasca, which is orally active DMT, it has to be mixed with, usually with a, a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. Um, Cagliostro never mentions one of those. Right. Now we know that there are a couple of different ways to make DMT orally active without that monoamine oxidase inhibitor. One way is by making it so potent with DMT that it overwhelms the monoamine oxidase in the gut. And right. so it occupies all of it and the rest of it gets through. Wow. The other way is there are, are certain species of acacia have these uh, these flavonoids in them that act as beta carbolines, MAOIs are beta carbolines, and it functions as a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. So there are orally activacacias that don't require DMT. Wow. Even so, we fast forward to the uh, right at the turn of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. there, there's a man named Frederick Hockley who who actually is who supplied what's called the cipher manuscript that became the golden dawn. Gotcha. It comes from him. He passed it on to a man named Kenneth R.H. McKenzie. Kenneth R.H. McKenzie was his student. And what he taught them was mirror gazing. He was big into crystal and mirror gazing. Okay. Okay. And, Kelly uh, and then, and, and those, okay. You got it. Yeah. You know, the, the Kelly's earlier, you know, that's. Oh yeah. 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 It's in the same vein as I was trying to get. Right. To right. And, and, um, even Joseph Smith staring into hats and things. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Same, same or, kind of, same kind of bag. Nostradamus yeah. staring in a pot of water, you know, yeah, the same right. thing. But, mm -hmm. um, Hockley had these students, one of them, Kenneth R.H. McKenzie, who wrote the first Masonic encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and then this man named F.G. Irwin and his son, Herbert Irwin. Um, his son was 14 or 15. And there, in their tradition, you have uh, a seer mm -hmm. who's a virgin child. And then you have the guy that's the, the scribe that's doing the invocations, writing down what the seer says. Right. And, um, McKinsey is trying to put together this encyclopedia and he mm -hmm. wants an entry on every Masonic order that's known. And okay. one of these Masonic orders was called the Fratres Lucius, the Brotherhood of Light. Okay. And uh, he couldn't find any, any information on it that uh, he could count on. And well, they believed that Cagliostro had been a member of this mm -hmm. order, whether he was, we don't know. Okay. But so they get Herbert to invoke Cagliostro in this crystal ball after he's been dead for you know 100 years or more yeah soak his spirit into this crystal and then they start asking him questions about the fratres lucius and uh and all of this was published in a book called the book of magic by uh, herbert irwin oh, wow. herbert irwin eventually died doing this because the they were still doing drugs to do the invocation i got and you feeding him laudanum which <laughs> is opium diluted in wine and he overdosed on laudanum and died. Wow. Um, but before he died, he received this transmission, allegedly, from Cagliostro, who said that, uh, you know, if you're going to be doing this fratres Lucius stuff, you got to have their pharmacopoeia. you got to know what drugs they were using. Mm -hmm. And so they said, well, what, what is the pharmacopoeia? And he gives them this list of plants. And one of those plants is called herb rue. Well, herb rue, um, Syrian rue, or also in 
old Greek times, they called it savage rue or wild rue, okay. not to be confused with ruta graviolens, which is the popular rue that the Romans would put in wine to help the bouquet, increase the bouquet, or um, the, the Catholic Church would actually use branches of rue to fling holy water on the oh country. there was there were the ones that were just okay okay but, but he it's he specifically says it's not that one it's the other root and that's this this savage root which even in the time of plenty the elder they thought were the same plant but traditional root is cultivated whereas wild or savage root grows wild and he says that it's poisonous it can kill you if you take too much of it Wow. But he says, if you don't take too much of it, he describes the effects of it. And he says that basically all the effects are identical to what are the side effects of taking a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, which is still prescribed this day for things like bipolar disorder. Right. Um, so even though Cagliostro never mentions an MAOI in his masonic or alchemical work his spirit does <laughs> in a crystal ball a hundred or more years later that's amazing yeah that's awesome that, i mean there's so much there there i mean that's a lot to unpack man you must have done years of research to get oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, your whole that life book, you know that book took me a few months to write but the mm -hmm. research behind it um close to 20 years wow to get all of that in one place and really wrap my head around what they're talking about. Um, Cause you know how cryptic that stuff can be. Oh yeah, definitely. And you know, I I'm, I'm thinking back, I think I saw another interview with you maybe once or, or um, was talking about, you know, the times before you were a Mason, you know, before you, you joined Masonry and after, and it's amazing that, you know, um, once you did how uh, I, I'm, I'm I'm guessing that once you did join Masonry, a lot of these um, puzzle pieces kind of got tossed together or, or at least joined more towards um, the goal and where the end of where all this is. And it and it's interesting to see that, you know, we always say for the, you know, those for, with the eyes to see or, you know, hidden in plain mm -hmm. sight. And, and I, I think that's definitely true, you know, I mean, especially I in your so work. Too. Yeah. I think, and I've, I've said that a couple of times that there, there's not nothing special about me. I mean, it, all, right. all it took is the person with the right pair of eyes looking at it or persons, you know, if, if we could get a, a team of people taking this stuff seriously and really investigating these old manuscripts, I imagine we would get a lot further than we are now. And the questions we're asking about the function and mechanism of some of these substances. I mean, we're just a blip on a timeline this stuff has been part of the human experience for probably since mankind was mankind, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it's ancient. And in that regard, it's safe. I like to always like to stress that, you know, people think it's dangerous to do this stuff, that these experiences are somehow unnatural. No, this is as natural as it gets. It's just, there's always a level of mystery to it. And that doesn't mean there aren't taboos and there aren't safeguards to put in place. Right. But it is the most natural experience you can have. And that's really the first thing that dawns on you when you do something like mushrooms, you take a good dose of mushrooms and there's always this sense of alienness to it. That's mm -hmm. just as strong as this feeling of, wow, I've been here before. I know yeah. this. Exactly. Reason, I know this, you know, yeah. That's funny. That's exactly how I described um, going through my first degree in masonry. <laughs> Honestly, when I, when I came through it, it's like, fuck, I've been here before. I've, I've done mm -hmm. this. You and know, it, it is a hallucinogenic kind of surreal 
thing they put you through. Right. Um, I like to talk about the second degree, the fellow craft degree. Right. That degree, you ascend that spiraling whirlwind of a staircase and you go to the middle chamber where you meet deity in the form of the letter G. And, you know, you yeah. receive these three gifts, these three boons, your wages. Yeah. Um, and that happens in the second degree, not the third. The third right. degree is where you die. Right. <laughs> so that means this this experience happens in life. Yeah. Know? Which is amazing, you know. And I, I think there's so many different uh allegories that are just waiting to be unpacked, you know. And, and I think that at some point, I think that's that's the point of the whole thing. It's just that it's all there if you can if you can unpack it and if you're yeah. if you can readily accept that information, you know. And it's you know, a real we, science of man. Yeah. It totally is. And I think that, you know, we talked earlier about AI and and you know the, the advancement of technology. I mean you know, running these manuscripts through something that can look at this holistically, you know, or just start picking out keywords or just taking, you know, okay, this, this drug can do this. What's the synthesis of this. And then how does that, I mean, that's coming. I mean, we can do that mm-hmm. now, you know, and, and there's a guy doing that right now with um, looking uh, in the same territory I'm researching. Um, his name's Dean McGrath. If you're listening, shout out to Dean, but oh, he's, cool. he's been using that chat bot. Mm-hmm. Oh, chat GPT three. Yeah. 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 To, um, to ask it about references of acacia and, and alchemical manuscripts. And um, that's awesome. And he's now several of them, it's gotten wrong. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it's changed the words so that where it might say the tree of life, it will change that to acacia because there are definitely traditions where the acacia is the tree of life. Right. Right. You have to be careful, but he did uncover one reference that is legitimate, that is part of uh, the what's called the Hartlib papers. This alchemist named Samuel Hartlib, who in Paracelsian terms is discussing the extraction of a crystalline substance from acacia, and that's the stone. And wow. we had missed that. Uh, when I wrote Angels in Vermilion, I didn't know about that. But wow. it, the, those papers were in the possession of the Royal Society. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that's important because the Royal Society. Elias Ashmole, one of the first speculative Freemasons, was the archivist for Dr. John Dee, who was, again, using the same substance with Edward Kelly to talk to angels. Yeah, which is amazing. (laughs) Yeah, and it sent sent the whole Royal Society on this wild goose chase looking for drugs that would meet the criteria of a red powder that caused this kind of experience. And, you know, the closest thing I could find to what was in their possession was Christopher Columbus's second voyage to the Americas, where he documents what may be Yopo use. Yopo is made from two mimosoid uh, acacia-like trees, anadenanthera colubrina and anadenanthera peregrina. And it's this snuff that, um, just like with the stomach, you can't just snort DMT and it work. But if you mix it with calcium carbonate, it renders it absorbable absorbable Uh by the mucous membranes in the nasal cavity. Whoa. So that's what they do. They they calcinate shells mm-hmm. and sometimes the bones of the dead of their ancestors, and they mix it with this powdered seed and and blow it up one another's nostrils with these long tubes. Wow. And Christopher Columbus describes this. Um, now he does. We don't know if he's talking about what's called hape or rape, a tobacco snuff, mm-hmm. or if he's right. talking about yopo. But we do know that. A man, an explorer named Avon Humboldt, went to the same region, found the same trees, and he described the tree as Acacia Neopo after Yopo. Wow. Um, so that that was our, our first real indication of where the Royal Society, how and why they might have settled on Acacia 
um, which that, that's how it got into masonry through J John Theophilus de Sagulier. He was the research assistant to Sir Isaac Newton in the Royal Society, and he became the second Grand Master of the Premier Grand Lodge in London. Wow! And it was after his stint as Grand Master that the acacia appeared for the first time. It wasn't there before. Right, right. But that's where we thought it had come from. But with this chatbot, he uncovered this Hartlib papers and. Sure enough, they were they were some of the papers in the possession of the Royal Society. That's so amazing. And you know, this is a crazy synchronicity. Well, is that when chat the chatbot gets things wrong, they call it hallucinating. <laughs> that's the actual <laughs> term for it. <laughs> no no yeah. shit. That's called it's called hallucinating. It's like, well, you need to get something wrong. It's like, you know, when did Christopher Columbus? It was like, you know, for, you know, 15, 16. It's like, I oh, know it's hallucinating. So it's funny <laughs> that that's the term they actually use for when uh, yeah. AI um, gets things incorrect, but that's hilarious. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> full circle. Right. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's based on what we're talking about, right? On, oh yeah. So if we talk about something and we get it wrong, it's increases its chances of being wrong. Right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, it's, it's just a great world to dump in and explore, but yeah. Uh, um, man, I can't wait. It's like, I know it's getting late. I, Tell everybody to go out, grab your book. I'm going to put all this stuff online. Uh, your new book's coming out, you said this year, end of this year, maybe beginning of next year? Yeah. Inner Traditions, Bear and Company. Um, they're publishing um, Theurgy, Theory and Practice, which looks at, uh, it's the first book. Uh, I've read every book on theurgy available. It's the first book to break down the theory, the the why in the first half, and in the second half to break down the, the how, the actual ritual spelled out step by step, what to wow. do. Um, it'll be out in December and they also picked up inner traditions also picked up my next book that I'm about halfway done with right now. That's, um, it's called tripping the path of souls, native American shamanism in the Mississippi Valley. And it's basically looking at, um, very advanced, uh, shamanic techniques that were being used in order to have what you would call a near death experience. They believed that certain people, if you'd been initiated into this, mm -hmm that when you died, um, that your soul could enter a portal in the sky. And the same exact thing is in theurgy. That's what, that's really what drew me to it. Wow. Because in theurgy, Plato in his book, uh, I think it's in the Republic. He talks about, um, this X, they call it Plato's X. Mm -hmm. It's an X because it's two circles that interlock. And from the side, it makes an X. Those two circles are the Milky Way and the Zodiac wheel, the ecliptic. Wow. And where they meet, there are portals and the, you enter that portal to get on the Milky Way, which since the time of Pythagoras, the Greeks talked about, that's where souls are before and after incarnation. They just circle the Milky Way. Huh. Well, the same thing is true in Southeastern Native American. All these different tribes talk about what they call the path of souls, and it's the Milky Way galaxy. Wow. And there are entry points that are in the exact same position as we see in Greece, and and not just Greece, uh, Egypt, Bab uh, and ancient Babylon. It's the same model over and over. There's a book called Visible Gates and Pagan Skies by this man named George Latura Becke. It's very small. It's just a little monograph. Mm -hmm. Get a copy of that. And that just sounds read amazing. It and you'll see the Greek, Egyptian, and Babylonian parallels. Well, now we have to add Southeastern Native American to that. And Mayan. Uh, there's, I'm reading this book right now, um, Mayan Cosmos, which is, involves Linda Scheel, who I'm a big fan of. But the same thing. They're, they're, they call the Milky Way the White Road. And 
it's the path that the gods take to be reborn, the maze god. He was he's reborn out of the same spot that in the Native American tradition is the portal that souls go into. Wow. And so they were they have these different um drugs that they were using to in ritual to mm-hmm. have this experience before they died. And uh and these drugs include one of them is uh, what I call misihuasca, um, which they were using a tree here called mm-hmm. Uh, used to be called Acacia Americana. Now okay. it's been reclassified as Gladitia triacanthos. But that acan is the same root as acacia in that. Uh, so it means okay. acacia. Okay. But it contains DMT in the roots. And they were boiling this up with various substances. Um, and they would call it black drink. Uh-huh. Most scholars talk about black drink um, and only talk about the fact that it had something in it called Ilex vomitoria, which is a yaupon holly that grows only in these southern states, Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, and Florida, I think. Okay. Okay. Um, and it's our it's the only Native American source of caffeine. It's a close cousin oh. of South America's yerba mate. Okay. Okay. But it also contains monoamine oxidase inhibitors in it. And if you mix uh-huh. it with this tree root, which they were doing, mm-hmm. you get something that's chemically almost indistinguishable from ayahuasca. Wow. And they were also using um, Nicotiana rustica, this very strong tobacco. Okay. Which also has monoamine oxidase inhibitors in it. Um, and they were drinking and smoking this stuff along with Datura, um, black nightshade, wow, hallucinogenic mushrooms. Like they had a very complex, advanced um, system. Pharmacopia. <laughs> to, get, to get the soul out of the body and on this path so that you could, you could know what to do. But when the time came, when you died, so that you would know exactly what steps to make, uh, very almost Gnostic in that you had to have, wow. there are certain rituals you have to do when you meet certain obstacles on the path, because it's like a series of trials. Okay. That you go through. Wow. Uh, but that that's so they, inner traditions also pick that book up, but it'll probably be December, 2024, or maybe a little earlier before we actually see it. That's fascinating. That's amazing. I, I don't know if you're, uh, following any of that whole skinwalker ranch thing um if you heard anything about that i've heard about it i don't know I, I have to admit i'm sorely ignorant when it comes uh, to that domain my brother um michael newman he's um the source i spoke with he has a podcast uh show and i think you follow him on twitter yeah definitely um he would be somebody to interview about that stuff he's he knows way more than i do <laughs> that kind of stuff that's awesome i'll definitely get to talk to him i was just when you were talking about portals and you know the southwest that is um that is totally what's going on uh, kind of like a skinwalker ranch they're, they're seeing portals in the sky and they have um, native american um, carvings all around skinwalker ranch that are portals and there's stone circles and you know they're seeing things in the sky so i'm just thinking that there might be some wow. type of correlation there there's also a square and compass carved into one side of the rocks there right on the ranch which um no shit yeah <laughs> which is really cool how and, how, how old is that um, they, they said, um, uh, I'm trying to think 1800s, um, and they attributed it to the Buffalo soldiers, I think that were traveling out that way. Well, you know, the, the five civilized tribes were all Freemasons. Um, their, their leaders were Albert Pike actually helped organize them. And, um, I think fault for them to be involved in Freemasonry. There's a great lecture in paper, but the lecture you can find on YouTube by Robert Davis, who is the uh, past grandmaster of Oklahoma on Albert Pike and the five civilized tribes. But, I got to get into that for sure. And there's another, um, a great lecture. Um, I don't know if he's published it, but I saw him present it. 
um, Taylor Keene, who is a, he's a Freemason and he's a, a, a Cherokee chief, but he was talking to us about the half moon ceremony, uh, uh-huh. which is the peyote ceremony they use. Okay. And he was showing us how there's a lot of crossover between how we move in a lodge and what, where things go, you know, orientations and things like that. Right. Uh, and how that appears in this half moon ceremony. But we don't know if that's just coincidental or if Quanta Parker, who wrote that ceremony, who we don't think was a Mason, but mm-hmm. may have been exposed to some of it through other natives. But there's a lot of crossover in the way a peyote ceremony works and the way a Masonic lodge works. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, man, my pleasure. I really appreciate it, brother. It's been awesome. We got to do it again for sure. Definitely. Anytime. I, I love it, man. I, I, I'm going to. I'm going to get off of this call and be like, man, I had 400 more questions. <laughs> we'll schedule another one and, uh, and uh, yeah, write your questions down and we'll, we'll knock them out. That's awesome. Dude. Thank you so, so much, man. Thank My you. My pleasure. Thank you. thank you for having me on. I appreciate it.